The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Oh, hello, creeps. Um, where are the uh, rules? There's only one rule. Are you ready? Here it is. There are no rules. Go. Welcome to The Noise Report, a podcast about music, movies, books, and other random assorted pop culture. Hosted by the music guy, CJ Plane, coming at you live from the house of fuckery. Welcome. Now let's start a riot. Now let's get out there and melt some faces! It's another episode of the Noise Report. Um, the music got CJ playing. You know what we do here. We have fun, we make noise, and we talk about really random stuff. Uh, mostly music, but uh, whatever comes up. And uh, over here to my left today is a, another gentleman you're going to hear. Um, I will introduce him. Uh, his name is Jim Curtis. Uh, he is a rock historian and an author. Um... He's got two books, and I will let him give a short bio on his other um, stuff, because he has a long list of accolades <laughs> that would take way too long to read. Um, so how are you today? Well, I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's an honor to have somebody of, uh, of your knowledge. I, I don't get a lot of people who have the background that you have. <laughs> Well, I, I just have a lot of interests, let's put it like that. Nothing wrong. Tell, tell people about your background more than just rock historian and author. I mean, you're a professor well, and a I lot have, more. I really have two careers, and the first one, the one that we're talking about tonight, begins in my hometown of Tupelo, Mississippi, which just happens to be, as surely everybody knows, the hometown of Elvis Presley. So here's the thing. I saw Elvis perform live in Tupelo. And that was a life-changing event. It was just an amazing experience. When Elvis came out on the stage, he had such force that he just pushed me back in my seat. The people who did not see the young Elvis live simply cannot imagine the force and intensity that he projected. It was just an amazing experience. And so that, in some ways, that determined the course of, of my life. I've always been fascinated in by rock and roll, and especially the great charismatic performers. Yeah. So I've been lucky enough to see, and this I have I've created a phrase. There there are three great defining performers in American rock and roll: Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan. Bruce Springsteen, and I've been lucky enough to see all three of them perform live. So for me, that's that's the heart of rock and roll. There are those guys, and there's everybody else. There's a lot of everybody else, but those are the guys that are essential. Without those guys, you simply cannot understand American rock and roll. I can't, I can't disagree with that. I think personally, for me, I would put maybe Bob Seger over Bruce Springsteen, but. That's just a personal preference. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. But um, very, very much in, I mean, I guess when you look at them, Bob's not as prolific as Bruce, but very similar in style of the, the songwriting and the stories that behind them and the imagery they use. And um, so I, I can't disagree. I can't disagree with Bruce. I really yeah. can't. Bruce right. is a right. an amazing, sure amazing artist, yeah. so. Bruce Springsteen's also won the Medal of Freedom. That counts for me. Yeah. Um, interesting story, or I guess side story for Elvis, um, or kind of related to it a little bit. Um, I was seven years old. My dad's a truck driver and uh, has been for 52 years. And I kind of grew up in his truck. And I was seven years old, about seven years old, and we stopped for dinner one night. And as we were coming through the parking lot of the truck stop, I seen this big semi, and I said to my dad, hey, I said, that's that's a snowman truck. 
And Dad's like, oh, no, it's just one that looks like it. And we went in, and we sat down to eat. And I had to go to the bathroom, and I got up, and I walked across to go to the bathroom. And as I turned the corner, uh, Jerry Reed and a bunch of guys were sitting in a corner booth. And I froze because I was, even at seven, I was such a huge fan of his music and his acting. Uh And uh, I kind of froze in my tracks and I ran back to the table and I told Dad, I said, Dad, Jerry Reed is in the back. And Dad Uh was like, no, that's not Jerry. That's just just some old trucker that looks like him. And I was like, Dad, that's Jerry. And he's like, can't possibly be Jerry. So I went back and as I come around the corner, I stopped in front of the table. And he looks up and he's like, can I help you, son? (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, are you Jerry Reed? And he's like, yes, I am. And I was like, my dad said it wasn't you. And he's like, well, where's your dad? And I was it like, really he's was. over there. Jerry stands up at the table and he's like, son, come on over here. <laughs> and uh, dad stood up and he looked and he was like, holy shit, it's Jerry Reed. Um, it really is Jerry Reed. What it was is they were doing the second Smokey and the Bandit movie. Uh-huh. And they were filming the scenes where he was traveling and they were away from catering so they had all stopped for dinner and so yeah. we got we got to have dinner with jerry reed and you wow. know this the stories and the just a, a one of a kind performer you know yeah. um and uh still one of my favorites i i truly believe probably one of the most underrated guitar players that ever lived so um and of course, for those of you that don't know, Jerry played with Elvis for a while and wrote U.S. Mayo and a, a few other songs. Um, so um, that's why I said it was kind of a Elvis side story. So. <laughs> well, I'm glad to meet somebody else who likes Smokey and the Bandit. Yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. Yeah. Being the son of a truck driver, you, you can't help but kind of like yeah. it, you know. I mean, it is the quintessential trucker movie i think other than maybe convoy is you know um so yeah i mean it's such a great movie i mean not just burt reynolds but goldie hawn and and jerry himself was almost a a scene stealer through almost the whole movie you know um and uh the amazing dog (laughs) so you know (laughs) even flash was funny so um yeah but Anyways, continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, you, no, you didn't. Well, anyhow, I was saying about the, uh, the what I call the mighty triumvirate, and um, they're the ones that that I mostly relate to, and um, that I've I've written about. Nice. Uh, just while we have a moment, I want to put up a copy of the book. Okay. I call it decoding Dylan because Dylan of the three great artists is the most difficult. He writes a lot of songs in code. Yeah. That doesn't mean that he's just doing it random. Right. There's a, there's a method in what he does, and what I do in the book is to show how how that works. Yeah, it, there was a quote somewhere. Uh, I can't remember where I read it a long time ago about Dylan talking about songs dropping down out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I will be the first to admit, I know uh, very little about Bob Dylan. I'm, he's mm-hmm. not someone I've listened to a lot of his music. I know his songs, obviously, because as a rock fan, you kind of can't not know his music. Yeah, um, right. sure. But I will not sit here and say I could name more than one or two songs on any particular record, probably. Um but I found that quote amazing because it is so true. As a songwriter myself, as a somebody who writes a lot of lyrics and poetry, it is something that you never know where inspiration will come from or where you'll get that idea. I mean, I've been driving through the country and just seen a house, and it just, that's a song, you know, and you kind of have to stop, and I'll pull the phone out, and I'll, use the voice recorder to quote you know what it is or song ideas or lines that popped into my head so that I can go back later and you know it really is one of those things of um, you know I, I kind of call it pulling magic from the a- aether you know 
Why um, not? Yeah, it's as good so. a term as any. <laughs> um, so I really, I really love that quote. And when you know, with the whole Bob Dylan thing, I, um, I do need to read the book because he is an amazing artist. I mean, I can't. Like I said, I don't know anything about him really, truthfully, as far as his history and all that. I know absolutely some of the greatest songs of all time. Sure. He has written, and they've been, you know, he's been covered by many other great artists, and, um, you know, anytime, I think anytime an artist comes along, whether you like them or not, you have to show respect. Um, for example, I personally, I am not a Rolling Stones fan. Um, I don't connect to their music that well. Any band with the longevity of somebody like the Rolling Stones, you just got to give credit to. Look, bands don't come along and last for 60 or 70 years. Years. You know, ZZ Top, for example, you know, they just lost their member. These are the three same guys that have been playing for 50-plus years together. Uh-huh. That's... Amazing. Yeah, so... Whether you like them or not, you gotta give them credit just for yeah, having the sure. gumption, the backbone, the uh, whatever it is to continue doing something that is so incredible on a scale. Like, look, people don't understand that the whole concept of being a rock star sounds glamorous, but when you get involved with having to have Lawyers, accountants, logis- logistical people. You have to hire people to move your equipment. You have to plan tours and you have to execute those tours. You have to be on schedule for, for interviews and for camera stuff and for shows and, and loading in and loading out. There's so much that goes into it that people don't understand how much work it really is. You know, you think, oh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay, but that runs out really fast if you don't know everything else that goes with it. And those guys, again, to do it for 50 years, to me, is just incredible. So It is, um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a uh, chemistry and magic yeah. in the Stones' work, for sure. Yeah. I think... I think Sympathy for the Devil has got to be one of my top five songs of all times, including some of Dylan's stuff. Yeah. That's it, a phenomenal song. Yeah, it, it is. And, and again, it's there's certain songs by the Stones that I really love, but just overall as a group, I don't really connect to them that well. Um, on the other hand, Pink Floyd is my favorite band of all time. Um, really? Yes. I am just... I'm almost fanatical about Pink Floyd. I uh, uh-huh. I own every record they've ever recorded. I have over a hundred live shows. I have videos, records. Um, I have eighty, I think eighty four Pink Floyd T-shirts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, really? I just there's something about Pink Floyd that I've just always loved, and um, you know, uh, they are my favorite band, and. Um, uh-huh. It's really not even close to the person that's in second place. Um, so what about what about what about like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Electric Light Orchestra? I, now ELO. <laughs> funny story about ELO. Um, I did not know who they were for the longest time. In 1986, I was watching wrestling in the Rock and Roll Express came out and their their intro music was rock and roll is king and i loved that song i didn't know who performed it and i was dancing around to it my uncle marty come around the corner and he says oh electric light orchestra and i was like what he's like that song is electric light orchestra and i was like that's who that is and he's like yeah Yeah. and i was like i have to have the record he's like well i have it at my house I was like, okay, I own it now. So he wouldn't give it to me. He made me go out and buy my own copy. But um, that was actually my introduction to ELO is uh, through 
old NWA wrestling. <laughs> Again, well, whatever it takes, right? Yeah, but, and again, uh, you never know like where you're gonna be introduced to to music. You know, I mean, I've been introduced to really awesome bands through crazy circumstances um, yeah. over the years, and um, you know, uh, sometimes by people that you would never know would even listen to that style of music. Um, uh-huh. You know, I met. My most successful band, uh, we had a death metal band uh, named Psychotic Therapy. And our manager was 74 years old, and she was a death metal fan. Uh, her real name was Donna, but everyone that knew her called her Metal Mom. And uh, she drove a black Corvette, and she drove around listening to the most extreme death metal music you'd ever imagine. Um, her son played in a death metal band, and... An amazing person, but if you've seen her, she looked like the typical June Cleaver type of grandma. Mm. But wow, she did not listen to June Cleaver music. I mean, it was it was funny, but it was awesome, I and mean, she was such an amazing person. And um, I cried and cried for days when she left us. So, um, oh. you know, but. Um, getting back on topic, <laughs> you have two books. You have two books. The other one is Rock Era's Interpretations of Music and Society, 1954 yep. through 1984. Um, yep. Give a little background on that one. Well, if you listen to rock and roll for a long time, mm-hmm. you start thinking about how things fit together. Mm-hmm. Not just in terms of individual artists, but eras, to use yes. a, a term that I thought. So I started to think, and I tell you when this moment occurred to me. Remember that moment in American Graffiti when the guy says, rock and roll has been going down ever since Buddy Holly died. And I got to thinking, ah, what about that? It wasn't just Buddy Holly going down on a plane in the snow-covered fields of Fairfield, Iowa. There's something more to it. And I started thinking, now, when did that happen? Well, it happened in 1959. Did anything else important happen in 1959? Well, as a matter of fact, it did. What could be more important than Elvis going into the Army? Okay, so we, if we say that rock and roll really begins with... Rock Around the Clock, Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, right. which was recorded in late 1954. So that gives us five years. Then I got to thinking, okay, that's five years of AM radio, disc jockeys, short singles. Mm-hmm. And then we get another five years, 1959 to 1964, this interim period of um, people like Fabian. And we all know what happened in 1964, right? Bang! The Beatles and the Rolling Stones of British Invasion. Which lasts, guess what? Another five years. 1964, 1969. What happens in 1969? Altamont. Any rock fan knows what happens at Altamont, right? Right. For those of you who don't know, it was the Rolling Stones Stones concert, concert. it would have to be a Rolling Stones concert, (laughs) when a Hells Angel Angel. killed a guy in the audience. Right. And there was general chaos and lots and lots of negativity, and that's generally thought to be the anti-Woodstock. Right. If Woodstock was the scene of positive vibes and good feelings and so forth, Altamont on the West Coast was the negation of that. Okay, mm-hmm. 1969, 1974, is this the period of simulation again, and we get 1974, 1979, which is, among other things, disco, and the opposite of disco, Bruce Springsteen. Right. Also punk. So Punk was right. a, a giant. So then there's, there's these t- 
times, right. and nobody plans this. I, I'm still wondering why it is it happens like this. Right. But if you listen to the music and think, when did that happen? What came after it? What came before it? It just falls together in, in a way right. that's really remarkable. It does, because, you know, sitting and, here and so thinking... Here, here's another one. Like I said, there's this mighty triumvirate of American rock and roll. Think about this. It's as though it takes America 10 years to assimilate one great artist and get ready for the next one. So let me give you three dates. What happened in 1955? Elvis appears on the Ed Sullivan Show. Mm -hmm. By the way, Elvis was 20 years old. Did you know that? I didn't when know he appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. I didn't know he was 20 when he appeared. I thought he, he was, was a little older. 20 years old. Nice. So that's 1955. What happens in 1965? Beatles. Bob Dylan records like a Rolling Stone. Oh, okay. What happens in 1975? Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run. Okay. Right? So it's, it's this very curious thing. It's exactly 10 years between the emergence of these great artists and their defining songs. It's just a remarkable thing. I don't have any explanation beyond that, but I do think about the way in which America needs to get ready for right. the next artist. Yeah. And, and thinking about the five-year thing here, sitting here thinking, you know, it really plays true in a lot of other things. For example, hair metal or glam, hard rock, whatever you want to call it. About 1983, 1984 is when that really took off. Uh, Quiet Riot, Motley Crue. And then by 1989, 1990, grunge takes over. That lasts about five years. Uh, at the end of that, new metal with Korn and them guys take over around 90, 94, 95. So it really holds true... I didn't even think about that really truthfully, but I'm sitting here thinking, I was like, it kind of is almost five-year cycles for the the different... I mean, it's not that the music is completely different, but it's, I guess, kind of what becomes king or prince um, as yeah, far and, as... And so you, you get this funny, you get this funny thing that yeah. one cycle ends... And another one begins, yeah. but the guys from the previous cycle are still playing. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. And this is this is why I say that the 1970s was the greatest decade in the history of rock and oh, roll. Oh, yeah. No doubt. No doubt at all. Right? Yeah. Because it had just... My fantasy was like, if I could go back and do time travel, just think if you had the time and money in one week, in like 1974, you could have seen Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, and Frank Sinatra in one week. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All, all through the 70s, my, um, the very first concert I got to attend, uh, actually wasn't until 1982, <clears throat> but I seen 38 Special and Iron Maiden opening for Rainbow. Mm -hmm. And when you think about that now in context, it's crazy to think of Iron Maiden opening for Rainbow because Iron Maiden went on to become Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden. <laughs> Rainbow is Rainbow, obviously related to Deep Purple. And 38 Special, in their own right, in the Southern rock genre, were, you know, a huge band. Um, but stylistically, those three bands are so different. Like Southern Rock, Heavy Metal, and almost Prog Rock in a way that it's kind of funny to think of who sat in the back room and thought, hey, we should really put these three bands together. <laughs> right. I, I, got another one. I got another one for you. How about this? I think it was about... 1965. Mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix opened for the Monkees. 
That would have been interesting. That would have been interesting. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. There's so much. You know, I think about the '70s, and of course, being a kid, I, I was, I was very, very lucky. One, <clears throat> spending so much time in my dad's truck because we traveled extensively and we pretty much lived in his truck. In an era when we didn't have laptops, cell phones, or any of that, I had books and music. <clears throat> my dad's favorite artist is Bob Seger. So uh -huh. I listen to more Bob Seger than anybody else. Um, but Are you also... Guys from the D Detroit area originally? Yeah, I actually, I'm born and raised up in Michigan. I was born and raised up in the thumb of Michigan. Um, but, you know, we traveled all over and... Um, I got a lot of Bob Seger. I got a lot of Bad Company. Uh -huh. And I got a lot of a band called... Um, look at that. Totally escaped me now. Um, uh, I can see their... I can see their face and I can't even... Boston. Um, Boston, Boston yeah. was More the other band. Like, yes. and um, Those guys could sing, you know that? They could th really sing. That is still probably my favorite all-time record. Hello? Yeah, yep, there, sorry. I phone call popped up. Um, uh, um, that first Boston... Sorry, phone keeps yeah. ringing. Um, that first Boston record, my dad owned it, and I wore out so many copies of his records just by continually playing them until yeah. the yeah. groove wore out. He finally broke down and bought me my own record and said, no, leave my copies alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's, there's something absolutely magical about... Um, that first record. Uh -huh. I, I, obviously, everybody knows all the stories about how Boston recorded that and the time that went into it and, and Tom developing the wireless guitar systems, the, the Rockmans, and all of that, which, you know, went on to revolutionize guitar playing for almost everybody. Um, but to this day... You know, it's one of those records when you put it on and you don't realize you know every single song without realizing you know every single song, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is probably my favorite all-time record of, of everything that's been recorded. Um, you know, that and... Um, well, how, how would you compare Boston with Pink Floyd? I mean, overall, I like Floyd better just for the extensive catalog, um, but I don't think I don't think Floyd ever recorded anything that was, you know, Pink Floyd is one of those love hate bands. You either like Floyd or you don't. You know, and yeah. generally, if you don't like Floyd, you don't connect to him or you don't understand the concept of who they are and what they were doing. Um, mm -hmm. And I get that totally. You know, when you get into something like The Wall or The Final Cut, or Dark Side of the Moon. These are very complicated records. The concept yeah. of them, the stories. So they're not for everybody. The same way uh, Tchaikovsky is not for everybody. Mozart is not for everybody. If you don't understand it, uh, T.S. Eliot, for example, if you don't understand his poetry, it's going to be meaningless to you. And, again that's perfectly fine. I'm not putting anybody down for not understanding it or not liking it. Cool. Everybody has their own taste. I don't care for the Rolling Stones. Personally, I really dislike Eminem as a hip-hop artist. I love hip-hop. I get so much hatred because, oh, how can you not like Eminem? I just don't. <laughs> I don't just not there, get huh? it. Um, I don't get the hype. But that's fine. Hey, you love Eminem? Beautiful. I like what I like, and, um, you know, it's, I admire people who do their own thing and like their own thing. 
Queen is, is probably my second favorite band. And... Yeah, you like these British groups, huh? I like big, bombastic music. I like uh -huh. music that has... I don't know how to describe it. I like music that's bigger than life. I uh -huh. like the characters in the bands. Freddie, for example. Yeah. Probably sure. the single greatest musical performer of all time when it comes to the performance art and the vocal ability. There would never be another Freddie Mercury. Um, I haven't seen the movie about him. Have you seen the movie? I wasn't really that impressed by it. I really don't like the guy who played him that well. I think he did a good job of playing him. Um, Freddie's such a complex character that uh -huh. I don't think anybody really could have got it right, truthfully. Um, you know, it's one of them impossible situations where you you get assigned something and you know you're not really going to be able to live up to the hype of what's coming. So you just do your best. Um, uh, but, um, you know, there are certain bands that they're bigger than life because of their character, because of the music they perform, because of the history behind the band. Um, and it's not always British bands, you know, when you think of uh, Guns N' Roses with what they did and all the drugs and then they somehow managed to record Appetite for Destruction which to this day is absolutely lightning in a bottle uh, for that style of music. Um, you know, you have performers like Frank Sinatra who just, they were one of a kind. Um, Tom Waits is a huge favorite of mine. Now, I would never go on record and say Tom Waits is a great singer. Tom vocally is a horrible singer. But nobody but nobody performs like Tom Waits. Tom is almost Dylanish in his way he performs, the way he writes, his theatrical approach. He's just a larger-than-life individual. And that's what gets my attention and makes me love somebody musically. Uh -huh. um, is There's got to be more to them than just Metallica. I, I'm not a huge Metallica fan because they're boring to me. I was going to ask you about Metallica. Yeah, they're, they're boring to me. You watch him on stage and he stands in front of the microphone and he just... He doesn't move around. He doesn't interact with the audience. It's I don't go to an arena show to see that. When I go to an arena show, I want to see Springsteen. I want to see that movement, that that interaction. Uh, Billy Joel, you yes. know, Elton John standing on the piano. Jerry Lee Lewis standing on the piano in, you know, Elvis. I never got to see Elvis, but I can only imagine again what it would have been like to see Elvis because of that charisma that persona that he projected the movement and the show that they put on it was the art of the show you know uh -huh. and even Sinatra you know here's a guy who he did lounge music for probably lack of a better term but when Sinatra come on stage he owned that stage yeah, he absolutely. made you part of the show, and you walked away from a Sinatra show probably feeling like it was the greatest thing you'd ever experienced. And that's what I want from any artist. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't care what genre you perform. I want to know when I go to your show that I was entertained. And sure. if you do that, then you get my money, you get my vote of confidence, and you get a fan <laughs> out of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, I guess me in a nutshell, um, as far as my love of music. Um, so, um, I, let me get to these five questions I, I sent to you because yeah. I, I'm getting way off track here <laughs> as I always do. Um, this is why I warned you in the beginning. Um, first one is modern technology, yeah. how it's helped or hurt artists, um, you know what your opinion on what your opinion is as far as how it's made music better or worse 
Well, my my first take on it is is the um, obvious one. It's made everybody a lot richer. Right? Just think of the way Motown, Barry Gordy and Motown, mm-hmm. kept repackaging the Motown hits. First they came out on 45s, then they came out on 33 and 3rd LPs, then they came out on CDs, and every time they were reissued, Barry Gordon and Motown would make, make more money, right? right? So if you think it's good that artists get rich, then I think probably modern technology has helped artists. Yeah. And, and on the flip side of that, I think it's hurt a lot of artists because you have, you have entities like Spotify where right. the owner of Spotify is making tens of billions of dollars every year, but the artists are literally making almost nothing off of the streaming itself. I mean, it takes like, I think it takes like a million or, or 10 million listens or something for them to even make like a dollar or a dollar fifty um which to me is outrageous i i i can't i I wasn't familiar with the economics yeah it's it's horrible and it's and it's all the way across the board it started with napster and then it continued on down to spotify and even apple apple pays better but it's still low far below what any artist like the stones or the eagles or chicago or um, any of those artists made off of record sales during that era, um, mm-hmm. you know, and and had money to uh, blow on drugs and cars and, um, uh, you know, if you listen to the great Joe Walsh song "Life's Been Good to Me," um, right. he tells <laughs> so you the far. story of the money they made and threw away, um, you know. I've lived in hotels, tore out the walls. You know, I have accountants that pay for it all. <laughs> um, so, uh, again, you know, it's going back to that era. You know, there's so much great music from the '70s. You know, yeah. the Eagles, be it Boston, be it Bad Company, be it Led Zeppelin, um, Aretha Franklin, um, Parliament and Funkadelic. I, I could just, I could go on and on of, of that era of really just so much greatness in that area you know in it um you know another band another british band uh well, scottish actually um that i absolutely love is the band slade um yes you oh, know. speaking of british bands what about yes you know yes is one of those bands that um i think yes is like pink floyd in a lot of ways yeah, and that's why I thought you'd like Yes. I, I do like Yes. I, I am a big I am a big big fan of prog style music. Um, yes and um, and um, oh, the, the band with John Anderson. Um, 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 yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, I, I not Uriah Heat, <laughs> but. Um, the one with John Anderson. Um, again, um, you know, they're bands that, again, they're, they're, the conceptualization of their music, I think it's hard for a lot of people to understand. Um, Uh, and it's why, and it's the, it's, you know, it's truly the argument you hear over and over about prog music. I don't understand it. I don't like it. It's to this or it's to that. And it's fine. It is, uh, even modern day with dream theater. You know, Dream Theater is a band that I love, love, love Dream Theater. But I get how people can be turned off by it. You have 25-minute uh-huh. songs that are conceptualized along a whole storyline. And if you don't understand the storyline or know the storyline, or if you just don't have the attention span to sit there and listen to a song for, for 26 minutes. Yeah. Um, I totally get it. And that's okay. Again, like I said, there's nothing wrong with not liking it. Hey. Listen to what you love, whatever it is. Sure, whatever it is, right? Yes, music is such a, or such an important part of life. Like I have, I have literally lived my life through song after song, and it saved my life. Uh, Michael Monroe of the band Hanoi Rocks, his first solo record, um, 
I never really had a single song that I, I kind of looked at as my motto song or, you know, my life song. And uh, the first single he put out as a solo artist was a song called Dead Jailer Rock and Roll. And that was it because that was my life. I knew at a very early age I was either going to be dead, I was going to be in jail, or I was going to play rock and roll. And when I heard that song, you know, you know, I always knew life presented to me there's three things I was going to be dead, jail, or rock and roll. I was just, that was it. That was the song that defined my life. And even now, 34 years later, that is a song that defines my life. Um, so, and I think everybody has one of those songs, you know. Yeah. Um, so, um, whether the lack of traditional labels uh, has been a good thing or a bad thing for music? Oh, I, I think it's definitely been a good thing. Yeah. Because, because back in the day, when you had Columbia Atlantic and a few of, of those labels, they really controlled music more than anybody yes. has a right to. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> and as a result, they limited what music could be. Yes. You know, so I, I think, yeah, that definitely the lack of traditional labels on the whole has been a good thing. Now, it's like everything else. Hardly anything else in life is completely good or completely bad. Right. And one of the things that you and I both know that's happened is the lack of traditional labels, the rise of the interband has led to a lot of self-indulgence. <laughs> a lot of music that shouldn't have been recorded, ever. <laughs> yes. Am I right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, I'm well known for speaking out. But, I'm, but I'm, I'm willing, here's my thing, I'm willing to live with that. Oh, I am too. I, look, here's the funny thing about it. Um, as doing this, I get from PRs, people from NR people, from record labels, uh, from the artists themselves, I get hundreds of records a week sure. that I have to listen to and I have to prioritize, okay, you know, how much time each one is going to get. Um, so I have a pretty general rule, like, you get three songs. If, if you don't catch me by the third song, I'm kind of moving on. Um, there are some artists that I have discovered that blow my mind. Um, one in particular that comes to mind is a new band out of Denmark uh, called Time Child. And uh, if you took if you took Boston, Deep Purple, and early, I guess early hard rock, um, and put them all together, that's what this band sounds like. The record is so just so amazing and. I contacted him, I said, hey, I want to interview you guys. And the guy says, well, I'm glad you like the record. A lot of people, this and that. Uh, we actually recorded it in my bedroom. And I was like, dude, there's no way you recorded this in your bedroom. It sounds too good. Oh, we, we couldn't get anyone interested. We did it completely on our own. You know, and, and I was just blown away by how well this thing was recorded how well it was mixed you would never ever know by listening to this record that this thing was done on like a two thousand dollar budget in the dude's bedroom um and i and i told him i said dude i couldn't even imagine this if you would have done this in an actual studio mm -hmm. because it would have been just out of this world like to have that extra um another band uh the Teskey Brothers out of Australia. Uh, they're a blues. As for the first time I heard the Teskey Brothers, my first thought was these guys are from Mississippi. They're from Beale Street. <laughs> they just had that Al Green bluesy Beale Street vibe to them. So I looked them up, and I was like, no way. 
these guys are from the outback in Australia. It's four white dudes. And I was like, that is shameful that four white guys <laughs> from the outback have to teach us Americans how to play blues and soul again. And I contacted them. Their record, again, was recorded in their living room. They wanted that very old school sound, so they searched for over a year to find an old reel-to-reel analog recorder. And they finally... They recorded on reel-to-reel? Yes. Like, like four-inch reel-to-reel. They finally I found a studio that. in Scotland that was closing. It, it was a, a, a studio that did that kind of music, the Blue-Eyed Soul. And they bought the machine and they had it shipped from Scotland to Australia. Australia. And again, you hear this record and it is so authentic sounding. Like, man, you could just hear the greats. You could hear B.B. King singing this. You could hear Elvis singing this. You could hear Al Green singing these songs. And uh, these are these are 20-something white guys from the Outback. And it's just mind-blowing how good they are. And, uh, yeah, and, and these are guys that traditional labels would have never touched in a million years. In a million years. So, I love the fact that Facebook and YouTube, even streaming services to a certain degree, having freelance PR people that will take a chance on these guys and promote them and that they can be heard and they can get their music out. Um, now, are they ever going to financially reach the levels of the Eagles or the Stones or somebody like that? No. Probably not, no. Can you make a living at it? You absolutely can. Yeah. Um, I bring this up in a lot of interviews right now. I don't know if you know who Tom McDonald is. Hmm. He is a white rapper from Canada. His music is very, very controversial. He does a lot of songs like Fake Woke and Brainwashed and a lot of stuff that's about modern politics and how divisiveness and how it shouldn't be and all of this. But anyways, he has harvested a fan base that is... He's harvested a fan base that makes the Grateful Dead deadheads look like complete amateurs. <laughs> this wow. guy does not... That's a strong statement. He does not release his music to any streaming service. It is strictly on record, CD or vinyl. He records his music, he puts it on his website, he's like, hey, pre-order right here. This is the only place you can get it. Two weeks ago, he released two records at the same time. 37 songs total between the two of them. CD and vinyl only, you had to order it off his website. He sold 153,000 physical copies in 36 hours. Amazing. Absolutely unheard of. No label, completely indie. Yeah. Working out of his living room with him and his girlfriend, they do everything. They record it, they mix it, they master it, they buy the stuff, ship it to their house, and then they literally turn around and pack each single individual package, send it out from their home. Blows my mind. I, I love... Amazing. Tom McDonald. And again, Tom is one of them guys very controversial. A lot of people don't like Tom because he's so outspoken. Again, it's not about whether you like the guy or not. Yeah. The fact that there is a modern artist who's completely independent of any label, even minor labels, that sells 153,000 physical copies is mind-boggling. It's an anomaly. Be doing something right. Yeah, like there are major label artists right now that don't sell a hundred and fifty-three thousand physical copies. Sure. Hundred and fifty-three thousand physical copies with every single dime going in his pocket. Uh -huh. <laughs> Who does it? Nobody. There's not a single artist in the world right now that can say that. So the only the only. Precedent I can think of is fish. Mm, yeah, yeah, 
fishes. Sort of the same thing. Yeah, go, like, yeah, very grateful deadish. Managers yeah. and so forth. Yeah, um, and, and again, any band that can do it, I say congratulations, and I challenge any sure, artist, sure. any band, yeah. whether you like Tom or not. Again, look at what Tom is doing. There's something that Tom is doing that is correct. Study him. Figure out what it is. Figure out how it applies to you as a musician or as an artist or whatever. And then use that to further yourself. You know, because, again, Tom is an artist that no label would ever touch. He's too controversial. He's too over the top. He's too outspoken. His lyrics are just... You know, I mean, um, you know, his lyrics are very, I don't want to say they're Fox News-ish. They kind of are, but they're really not. Like, he goes after both sides and just says, you know, that the whole movements that are going on are, they're ludicrous and that we're being divided without knowing we're being divided, you know. Um yeah. So, uh, moving on to the next one. Um, who do you consider the most essential artist of the past 25 years or so? Well, just a few. it's going to be no great surprise. Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen. I mean, they're, they're the constellation right. of living artists right now. And what's amazing, of course, is that they're still going at it. Yes. Yeah. So uh, many. I think that... I think that Murder Most Fell is an absolute masterpiece. It's as good as Dylan, anything Dylan ever wrote. I, I have to go and listen to it. I I will admit, I, I don't know the record. I haven't listened to it, but... Um, well, it's not 25 minutes long, but it's 12 minutes long. And, and again, like I said, it's... You know, you have those artists, I guess, or at least I do, that I always mean to sit down and listen to. And study their music, and I never really get along around to it. Um, mm-hmm. The Grateful well, there's just so much music out there. Yeah, the right? Grateful Dead are one. Um, not that I'm a Grateful Dead fan, but I want to listen to the Grateful Dead catalog from front to back, simply to try to understand what it is about the Grateful Dead that caused that phenomenon with them. Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah, that movement. That's a good question. Um, same with Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. I'm pretty familiar with Jimmy Buffett, but again, Buffett has created an industry around mm-hmm. his music, yeah. be it restaurants and books better, and movies. Let me put it like this. He's a better businessman than he is a songwriter. Yes. <laughs> yes. But think? again, it all started with the songs, you know? And you... Again, there's something about these artists that has not just endeared them to the public and to pop culture, but has generated a legion of fans that follow them from town to town to town to town. People go to 8, 12, 15 shows in a row. They plan their entire summer vacations. Yeah, that's what they do. You know, and Fish, you know, mentioning Fish. Fish is the same way. They kind of inherited the yeah. Great for Dead uh, crowd. And, you know, Ween as well. Um, you know, there's there's something about those phenomenons I think everybody should be studying and understanding and using for their, for their own thing just to... You know, look, like you said, Fish. Fish is making so much money. And as an artist, you should be looking at that. How are they doing it? Yeah. What are they doing that I can do to possibly reap some of those benefits? You know? Right. Um, and so. we know what they're doing. They're bypassing the record labels. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. it's, but it's more than that. It's not just the labels, man. you got to... Once you bypass the label, you still... Um, ICP, for example, Insane Clown Posse, again, probably one of the most hated bands in the world. <laughs> but these guys have put on this, you know, hollow wicked for years and years and years. They've put on the gathering of the Juggalos for years and years and years. They've made tens of millions of dollars on a style of music that is 
I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, um, some love it, some hate it. But again, it goes beyond just the label thing. You got to plan this stuff. You got to harvest this fan base. You got to keep entertaining this fan base. You've got to have the right merchandise in. Again, there's all of these lessons that I think people can learn from these artists that are successful like this. Especially and even more so because of the fact they don't have a label. They have to do it themselves. And if you're an upcoming artist, that's where you got to start. Uh-huh. All of the punk bands from the 90s, Green Day, No Effects, Good Charlotte, um, The Offspring, these all started as bands that were playing shows in high school gyms. They were playing in dirty clubs. They were playing in people's living rooms and people's backyards before they ever saw a dime of music. And then somebody come along and said, hey, we can make money off this. And they did. And then now they're back. Now Green Day doesn't have a label. They're doing it on their own. And they're still making that money because they learn to harvest that fan base and keep it going. Um, So, um, last one. The biggest factors you think contribute... Uh, to an artist's success. Okay. This is something I've studied a lot. Mm -hmm. In my book, I call these the markers of creativity. Okay. And I need to just riff on this for a couple of minutes because it involves a couple of moving parts. Uh, The short version of of it is this. The best thing that can happen to you as an artist is to be alienated from your father. Okay. All right? So, let me go through Elvis Presley, Bob Dylan, and Bruce Springsteen. Elvis Presley's father was in jail. Did you know that? Yes. Spent time in the prison in Mississippi where he bonded with his mother. Bob Dylan has this great line about his father. In his book Chronicles, he says, my father and I lived in different towns. Right. And then Bruce Springsteen's father was genuinely crazy. He was <laughs> right. genuinely had, you know, mental issues. Right. So here's what happens. And it doesn't just apply to rock stars, by the way. It applies to writers, it applies to all yes. kinds of creative people. Yes. Namely, that when this happens to you, like when you're 15 or thereabouts, Mm -hmm. what you have to do is to figure out who you are in relation to the world. Mm -hmm. If you have a good, kind, nurturing father, your father helps you do that. But a lot of artists don't have that, and that makes them artists, because they have to figure out who they are in relation to the world. Mm -hmm. There's a term that's used by the psychiatrist, it's called meaning-making. You have to make meaning of who you are mm-hmm. in relationship to the world. And nobody can do it for you. You have to do it yourself, often under difficult circumstances. Yes. Well, guess what? That is probably the best preparation that anybody can have to be an artist. It's not something we would wish on people. Right. We would like for people to grow up in positive families and have good relationships with their father and so forth. But you and I both know it doesn't always work that way. Yeah. (laughs) So here's the thing. Really, if you go through the lives of the greats, of the people who are really important, who changed the world in various ways, Mm -hmm. what you'll find over and over again is the father dies, there's a divorce in the family, there's some kind of conflict with the father, and what it does you have to be have to have a talent. There's no substitute for that. Right. But when it happens to a talented boy, then it sends him out into the world, and it's like he has a head start on everybody else. So that's the answer to that question. Yeah, I, you know, I can't disagree with that. I think a great, great portion of my own songwriting, my own musical self. <laughs> very much has been tempered by the relationship with my father who, um, you know, that broke down. I was 
14 years old, I got pushed into foster care because of my relationship with my stepmother. And um, since that point, I've spoken to my father three times in about 35 years. Um, oh. So, yeah, and a lot of my songs, I mean, if sitting here thinking about it, a lot of my songs are definitely um, <laughs> very much written of, you know, right. towards that. Let me, let me close with what I think is the ultimate example of this in rock and roll. Do you know the story of Jim Morrison and his father? Vaguely, not. I don't know it well. I know that his relationship was like very... The, this is like the ultimate alienation for his father. <clears throat> he was from Florida. His father, God help us, was an admiral in the Navy. Okay. And Morrison ran away from home. And he just disappeared. His parents had no idea where he was. They thought he was dead. And you know how they found out he was alive? I love this. They found out how he was alive because one of his brothers brought home a copy of the first Doors album. <laughs> wow. And they saw him on the cover, and they said, oh, that's Jim. That's crazy. How's that for alienation from your family? Yeah. I, uh, I, my uncle isn't a songwriter, but it's a funny story now. He left for Vietnam in 1956, the year it started, and he was on, he had just turned 18 years old. Um, he went to Vietnam and he stayed in Vietnam the entire time. He kept volunteering. You're to kidding stay. me? And until 74? Yeah, he stayed until the end of 73. And married his wife there, brought her back home with him. And if you ask my uncle why he went to Vietnam and he kept staying there, he will tell you because it was easier and more preferable than being at home with my grandfather. <laughs> so, um, okay, he's not a songwriter, but, you know, when you, when you get to the point of alienation where being in a war zone is literally more preferable than being at home with your father. Um, I think it says a lot about a person and the relationship that they come from, you know? Um, and it's kind of crazy, I guess, because, you know, my uncle at that point, we didn't know about my uncle for many years. Um, my, my grandmother, my dad's mother, um, had him before she married my grandfather Plane, and uh, nobody knew about him for many years. Uh, his father was partly crazy, partly an alcoholic. Um, just a very mean, abusive person, and um, that's why he left home. Is that was his only out, and was I can join the army and go to war, or I'll be stuck on this farm forever with him and. You know, he says, I'd rather be, I'd rather be over here getting shot at than, and uh, he was a Marine recon sniper, so he was literally in the heart of it the whole time, man, and uh, toughest man I've ever met in my life, you know, uh, wisest man, I mean, war tempers you in a way that I don't think a lot of people can understand, um, yeah. you're either going to come out a raging maniac, or you're going to come out being like Confucius and my uncle very much is the Confucius type he he looks back on it with lessons of look it's not anything you ever want to experience and uh, he's a mediator that can tell you the most horrific stories and why you should never use violence only as an absolute last resort last resort to save your life um, so, yeah, I, I get, I get that dynamic of the whole, the whole father thing very, very much, uh, um, so, um. Okay, this has been great. Boy, yes. We could just riff on and on about yeah, music it, and life and so forth for a long time. Yes, very much. Um, this is Mr. Jim Curtis. Uh, he is the author of Rock Eras, Interpretations of Music and Society, 1954 and 1984, and a book called Decoding Dylan, uh, which I am going to very much challenge myself to read uh, so that I can learn more because um, 
I think I owe it to myself and and uh, whatnot to really understand this great artist uh, more. Um, and I thank you for that. I I will be purchasing your book and reading it because uh, I do want to know more and um, reading your article. Pop matters. That's that's what I want to end with. Tell people where they find you. Where do they find your 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 books, your writings, everything else about you that they can go in. Well, and just go to, go to Amazon. Yeah, Deco easy easy title to remember. Decoding Dylan. Go to Amazon.com. Decoding Jim Curtis. Decoding Dylan. Awesome. Go do that. Uh, let uh, Mr. Curtis know that you heard him on the noise report. And uh, with that, uh, I'm gonna shut the hell up because I think I've rambled long enough. <laughs> um, you guys be well. Treat each other with kindness. And um, remember that uh, words and emotions, uh, more so now than ever, uh, they're very strong. So uh, give a smile because you never know when a simple smile could really change a person's trajectory uh, for the day uh, from good to That's bad. That's for sure. So uh, with that. Words well spoken. Yes. Uh, with that, uh, we're out of here. <laughs>